Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. God calls us to confess our sins as we proceed in the worship service. Psalm, or not Psalms, Isaiah 46 is our call to confession this morning. The first four verses of Isaiah 46. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but they have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and even to his gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, even I will carry, and will deliver you. Thus far the reading of God's word. This passage was my first assignment in seminary to preach on, so I come back to it fairly often. And it connects to our catechism reading today. Who is our mediator? Who can be our deliverer? The answer we'll come to is only Jesus. We are prone to look to other things to save us. Israel had these idols, Bel and Nebo, but they had to carry them around. The idols became a burden themselves instead of a source of deliverance. They didn't really do anything for them. And God says, hey, I'm carrying you. I deliver you. So we need to remember, we are tempted to look uh, for deliverance uh, from, from many different things, two different categories. Sometimes from things that God outright forbids. Things like Bel and Nebo, idols, pornography, gambling, crime. But more often, uh, maybe for those like us, we are tempted to look for deliverance from things that God gives us for physical blessing. Things like insurance, or a bank account, a weapon, or a job, or a spouse, or children. These are all things God wants us to have to help us, but we may not trust ultimately in them. There's only one thing that gets us to God, one thing we may trust in. One mediator between God and man, the man of Christ Jesus. This reminds us of our need to confess. Heavenly Father, again, we turn back to your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that it would indeed give us light. This happens by the working of your Holy Spirit. Uh, as you have inspired these words, uh, illumine our hearts now. Uh, let this word shine forth, that we may see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we may, we may uh, know how we are to be uh, transformed, how you are transforming us into his image. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 4. Hear God's word. But it so happened, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant, and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria, and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? 
Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads, and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity, and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry, and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears and the shields, the bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction, and with the other held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. The grass withers, the flower fades. This word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Well, if you remember from the last chapter, all those uh, names and places that I could barely pronounce, you might have gotten the, the picture from that chapter that everything was just going swimmingly. Everybody's building the wall. It's going great. 
Well, there's a bit more to the story that we read today. You see the, the theme in the sermon outline you have there in the bulletin. Uh, we respond faithfully to threats against God's people with prayer, with guarding and building, and with God's armor. So we basically have two uh, parts to this message. One is the threat, and the next is the response. And the people give a bit of a poor response, and we have Nehemiah's faithful response in contrast. So if you can tell by the numbers in the outline, I'm not going to go exactly in order. I'm going to rearrange things a little bit so that we can deal a bit more topically with it. The threat first, in the first three verses, then it reappears in verse 7 and 8. The first response uh, that Sanballat has is an interesting one, and it's something we ought to consider more than we do. He's furious. He's indignant. And it comes up again in verse 7. They became very angry. Right? One of the responses that the world around us has to Christians, to God's people, to God's truth, is anger. And we need to expect that, and we need to be ready for that. We're often taken aback by it and wonder, why on earth? And we're even offended, uh, scandalized by it. Uh, this is uh, something that uh, the unbeliever naturally does. He responds in anger when he's presented with God's truth, with God's ways, or with God's people uh, building up what should be happening. So anger is the first one. Mockery is the second one. Another one we don't often think uh, we aren't ready for. They tell each other, and they tell us, how futile our building project is. Right? What do you think you're doing? You're not going to, you can't do that. There's the, the fox, the famous fox saying there. Uh, where is that? Verse 3. Right? Even a fox could break down your wall. You, you got nothing. It's so flimsy. We could take that down in a couple of in an hour or so. It's mockery. It's it's meant to be demoralizing. And sometimes unbelievers mean that. Sometimes it just naturally happens in their anger and derision. Not only are they angry, not only do they mock, but verse eight and verse eleven they plan to attack. So they plan to attack, and this seems to be a, a secret plan. Right, because uh, it's found out about uh, later on, and Nehemiah is able to prepare for it, but it was meant to be a secret attack. And there you get the idea that Satan attacks God's people not usually head-on. Right, his attacks are usually subtle, indirect, and we're not often prepared for them. That's often how Satan attacks. He doesn't uh, come at us and say, "Hello, I'm Satan, and I want to deceive you today." Right? There'll be some kind of indirect thing that sounds good, that sounds partly true, and then we are called to respond faithfully. So that's the essence of the threat. Uh, and again, if you remember uh, in verse, oh, I forgot the verse now, verse 2, uh, Sanballat is speaking before his brethren and the army of Samaria. Right? This threat isn't just words. It's not just like what we see in the news, all these people who are doing, uh, saying such awful things. It's, it's an army, right? And they have an army that probably could take down this wall. There's probably some truth in this. Uh, yes, the wall is only half built. It's probably easy to, to destroy at this point uh, with, with the right set of circumstances. So there's some truth to this. Uh, Samaria has an army that wants to come and attack and destroy Israel. So there's a very real threat here. 
Now we have the people's poor response, I want to mention, in verses 10 and 12. And part of this response might not be to the, the military threat. I think in verse 10, you see Judah says, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. So that may be in part to the, a response to what they're hearing from Samaria. But it may just be they're looking around them and they've been building and they're halfway and their strength is flagging and failing. It may have nothing to do with what's going on outside that's coming at them. It's just there's too much to do. <coughs> I don't know if you ever had this feeling. Parents especially, I think, have this feeling after the kids are in bed at night and you're, you're sitting back and you're trying to regain your senses and you realize, I'm going to have to do this all again tomorrow. And it can be overwhelming. And mom and dad talk about it, and sometimes they talk late into the night, and it gets too late, and you get discouraged and depressed, and it's probably better to just go to bed and rest. <laughs> right? But there are times like that where we get demoralized, where we get discouraged and overwhelmed with how big the task is. This is the situation Israel was in. Verse 10. Verse 12 is another response. And this is to the military response directly. From wherever, whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. They told us ten times. So the people here are responding to the enemy's seeming power, to the, the threat. They are um, overwhelmed. Uh, they are, I wouldn't use the word paranoid because the threat is real. And they are panicking. And so the people respond, and they come to Nehemiah ten times. We're, we're in trouble. This, it, it's kind of a the sky is falling kind of mentality. Except sometimes the sky really is falling, right? So the, the Samaritans are coming. The Samaritans are coming. But there's a, there's a note of panic to it. And Nehemiah, and I think part of the idea here, part of the point of, of what God gives us in Nehemiah, this faithful leader, is one who can deal with a threat that will send others into a tizzy and into a panic. And instead, right after verse 12, verse 13, therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall. Right? Nehemiah knows what to do. He knows what to do in response to this threat. Now I jumped ahead though. Nehemiah's response really begins in verse 4 through 6. Verse 4 through 6, we see the threat already. Nehemiah kind of goes back and forth. Threat, response, threat, response, threat, response, threat, response. And I'm putting them all kind of together here. So his response in verse 4 uh, is, and it's kind of an abrupt thing, right? From verse 3, the, the, even a fox could make this wall fall down. Nehemiah immediately says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. He prays. Our first response ought to be prayer. And, and he simply uh, tells God the situation. Not like God doesn't already know, but it's good to tell God your situation. That can help you sort out what your situation is, really. You're talking out yourself. But uh, there's a situation here is that they despise us. Right? We are despised. Next phrase, basically he says, So despise them, Lord. God, uh, Nehemiah asked God for poetic justice, for a, a, a reflective justice. Give them what they're trying to give us. Uh, that's uh, the end of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5. And then he gives a reason at the end of verse 5. 
for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. There Nehemiah simply says, surely God, you're angry about this. <laughs> and we, based on God's word, we have warrant often to, to watch the news and say, Lord, surely you're angry about that. Right? And so we uh, pray in that way. That's why we read uh, saying Psalm 83 today, uh, an imprecatory psalm. Notice that imprecations like that are not only in the Psalms. This is Nehemiah, right? The imprecations like that aren't limited to the Psalms. They're throughout Scripture. And it's fine, I believe, we believe, to pray and to sing like this. I always like to use the example of uh, Saul of Tarsus uh, when you think of Psalms of imprecation. Before Saul of Tarsus was converted... I believe the early church was fine and right to pray that Saul be stopped, be destroyed. Right? He was trying to stamp out the church, going from house to house, arresting people. Praying psalms of imprecation against Saul of Tarsus would be biblically warranted. But then God saved Saul. So now what? And it actually tells us in the book of Acts, the church had a hard time accepting him, right? He would come into the church and try to start talking about how Jesus is the Messiah. And they're all like, whoa, we know who you are. You're coming to arrest us. No way. Get out of here. And they'd actually make him leave. And he needed, I think it was Barnabas, to introduce Paul to the church, right? The church had a hard time accepting him. But they needed to. They needed to accept him. They needed to change their prayers accordingly. Because God works in our hearts. So, Nehemiah prays. He prays uh, what their situation is. He said, ask God, you're angry about this, I'm sure. Uh, stop them. And then verse 9 also he prays as well. We made our prayer to our God. Same thing in the next uh, cycle of threat and response. There I don't get the sense that it's impre impre imprecatory so much in verse 9. It's more, Lord, help us to be ready. Lord, give us the strength. There's all different ways to pray in response to threats. So Nehemiah's first response is prayer. The second is to survey the building progress, verse 6. We built the wall, verse 6. The entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Here there's a sense of surveying what's going on. You know, you take a step back and you get the big picture. Okay, we've got this threat coming at us right here. Well, let's step back and see the whole chessboard. That's probably wise when you're faced with a threat. And so he steps back and he sees, okay, the wall's half built. That's, that's not bad. That's good. The people have a mind to work. They're, they're wanting to get this done. So he's seeing the positive things going on as well. I think it was Alistair Begg. I've been listening to his sermons on Nehemiah. They're very good. He talks about getting halfway through a project, uh, like a football game, say. And he said the, the second half of a football game can be very different than the first half. And you have to watch out for that. All of a sudden, what was the team? Was it Minnesota? Somebody had this huge comeback this past season, right? They just <clears throat> way behind in the first half, came back in the second half. Completely different game, right? That kind of thing can happen uh, with God's people. The first half... Uh, of your season of raising your kids might be one thing, and the second half might be completely different. Bad to good or good to bad, could whatever it is. And I think there's something significant about Nehemiah mentioning the walls half built. But now there's there, and now this threat is coming. So there's this there's this who, what did, one of the presidents called it an inflection point, right? 
There's this, there's this point of decision, point of where something, everything might turn here if we're not careful. And so uh, we see some of that starting to happen in verse 10. The people's strength is failing. They're afraid of the threat. So what does Nehemiah do? Thirdly, after surveying the building progress, after praying, he sets a guard. And here you have this in verse 9 and 13. Uh, they, he prays and he sets a watch day and night. And then verse 13, positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. In other words, where the wall was vulnerable. So he's being tactically sound. Get, get all the vulnerable points and watch those. If you don't have stones to, to guard, then put living men there to guard. It's kind of the idea. So we're dealing here with setting a watch with weapons. Uh, now this, I think, is why we read Genesis 2. This is what Adam fails to do in the Garden of Eden. Realize that what Nehemiah's project is, typologically, is kind of a rebuilding of Zion, a rebuilding of paradise. Not that they could do that on their own. They needed God's grace and help, of course. But God had given Adam and Eve a garden, and it was something of an enclosed garden, I'm sure, because it was set apart from the rest of uh, the creation. And he was called to tend and keep the garden. And we often run over those two words. Tend meant to work it, to, you know, to cultivate it. And the word keep really means guard. Guard the garden. So Adam uh, was told to tend and guard the garden. And Satan comes in, and Adam just lets him. And he doesn't keep him out. Just listened to a great podcast this past week about this, that um, when, when Satan came and started talking to Eve, Genesis 3 tells us that Adam was right there with him. <clears throat> so it's good to imagine what should have happened. Well, Adam, when he saw what was happening, he should have pushed the serpent out, fought him in some way. Uh, this one guy, Pastor Lusk, he said he ought to have crushed the head of the serpent. He's speaking uh, deceptive words against God. Satan comes in, Adam just lets him. Sanballat, the Samaritan, comes in, comes to this uh, walled garden that Nehemiah is attempting to rebuild. And Nehemiah wards him off. Nehemiah is a faithful Adam in this sense. <clears throat> Adam also had to protect the tree, by the way, from himself. Right? Don't eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Guard the tree. But you have to guard it from yourself. So it's, we're kind of focused on external threats so far here, but we also need to be focused on guarding God's people from our own worst impulses. Uh, you're guarding against your own sin as well. So uh, the saying goes, as we think about tr setting a guard, <clears throat> there's the old saying, trust God and keep your powder dry. Right? That's true. Uh, but you don't want to trust in the dry powder either. Like I said in the call to confession, God is at the helm of events, but we're called to do what we can. So you have this mention, uh, it, it's fairly frequent in this chapter, of swords, spears, bows. Uh, Nehemiah and his people, they know the weapons that will help and stop intruders and invaders. That's a good thing. There's a, a Gnostic impulse in the church today that would say to Nehemiah, just pray and God will take care of it. If you take up the sword, then you're not trusting in God. And that's, that's not a good thing. 
uh, no, Nehemiah sets a guard, but he trusts in God. You can do both. It's tricky, but you can do both. Now, there's also Ephesians 6, which reminds us that our main fight is spiritual, not physical. Right? Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, etc. This is not Gnosticism, or St. Paul is Gnostic. So we have to be very careful about uh, throwing around that, that Gnostic uh, accusation. Uh, when we talk about fighting the good fight, and somebody says, well, that's a spiritual fight mainly, then people often get up in arms and say, oh, you're spiritualizing the text. It's really about this earth, this earth. Well, then Paul's spiritualizing the text. It's okay to spiritualize the text. We need to fight in a spiritual sense. Jesus wards off Satan in the desert with no walls to protect him, no garden to sustain him. The attacker comes. And Jesus uh, wards off that threat. He does so with prayer and with the Word of God. Those are the two main parts of the armor of God Paul mentions in Ephesians 6. This, this uh, situation also made me think of Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing. Right? Verse 6 of Philippians 4. We see in Nehemiah 4, the people were very anxious. They come to Nehemiah ten times. They're going to be upon us from every direction. They are obviously anxious. Right? Be anxious for nothing. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, there's that word guard again, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. I, I love that verse. It, good teachers have pointed out to me that it, it's saying that the peace of Christ is going to guard you, not the other way around. It's not that we work up feelings of peace and then those feelings will guard us. No, God's going to give us the peace and God's going to guard us with that peace. It reminds me of um, videos I used to watch online of, of dads who saved their kids from all kinds of accidents. Have you ever seen those montages where the kid's going up in the swing and he flies off and dad's right there to catch him before he falls? Those kind of things. Happen, happened to me frequently. The, the most common occurrence was you're in the living room and there's the coffee table with kind of a sharp corner and the, the toddler's crawling along and his head's about to hit the corner, right? And dad just goes, whoop, and he just hits your hand instead of the sharp thing. Happened to me 50 times at least. And the kid just keeps trucking right along like nothing happened, right? That happens to you every day. God does that to you every day, every hour. You're just trucking along and you get some little bump and it bothers you and you don't realize that that could have been a major disaster were it not for God's mercy. The peace of Christ guards you. Uh, or think of it in the Westminster language. Jesus is our king, that Westminster says. He rules and defends us against our enemies. Jesus is our sure defense. So anyway, all of that on Nehemiah, setting a watch, setting a guard. There's a way in which we need to do that physically, and there's also uh, spiritual uh, steps we need to take. Next thing that Nehemiah does. Fourth, he speaks to his people. Verse 16. Not, not 16, verse 14. 
And this is probably the, the highlight uh, verse of this chapter. He looks, he rises, he says to the nobles, the leaders, the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Short speech, but a rousing one. And he says three things here, notice. Three things that are important. First of all, don't be afraid of them. And the people might be thinking, if that's all you have to say, well, why not? This, the Samaritan army is bigger than ours. Our wall's only half built. We're not there yet. We're not ready. We're trying. But they've got more. Why not be afraid? Well, he goes right into number two. Remember the Lord. Great and awesome. We often skip over this part because we like the, the last part. But remember the Lord. God is much greater than this Samaritan army. God is much greater than this overwhelming task that you have before you. He can give you the strength. God drowned Pharaoh's whole army in the blink of an eye. Nehemiah could have said. He can take care of this. So don't be afraid. Remember God. And third, you have much to fight for. Fight for your brethren, he starts with. I think that means his fellow Jerusalemites, Judeans, Jews. For us, this means the church, God's people. Fight for uh, all believers. Fight for your family, second, for your children and your wives. I think it was Chesterton who said that we don't fight because we hate what's in front of us. We fight because we love what's behind us. That's very important to keep in mind. Right? We don't fight focused on the hatred. We fight because we want to defend God's truth. So, a rousing speech. Speak to your people. That's what Nehemiah does, the fourth leg. And that's important for us to do. That's why we, that's why God sets up the church, I think, with sermons like this weekly. God wants to speak to his people. Uh, in families, parents, you need to speak with your children. Uh, it, it's important that you actually speak and not just act. Uh, explain why we're doing what we're doing. Now, at this time, they don't actually fight because they're ready. Uh, they know what to do when the enemy comes. So again, this is like Jesus in the desert. Jesus fights and he resists temptation because he loves his people and he is out to save us. Not like the first Adam who just watched as Eve gave in to temptation. Adam did not love her enough to resist to fight the serpent. Adam, again, should have told the serpent, uh, maybe Eve, hey, God said we may not eat that. And Jesus tells, in, in the desert, Jesus tells the serpent, it is written. Right? The first words out of Satan's mouth are, has God really said? Well, yes, he has. We trust this word is his. That's the foundation of everything. I heard a great podcast by Sinclair Ferguson this past week. So he said, um, he had a preacher come to him once and say, you know, it doesn't really matter what preachers think of the Bible. As long as they're preaching, you'll be blessed by it. And he said, I instinctively knew that was wrong. When you get preaching from someone who relies and completely believes this to be God's Word, that's going to be preaching you can rely on. But if they don't, then what's really going on? We trust this Word. It's the sword of the Spirit. I pray that we study this word 
as avidly as we study our other hobbies. Right? You, you study computers or cars or guns. You know the latest model. You know the latest everything about everything. You, 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 you've looked into it. You've invested time because it's important to you. Are we studying the Word in that kind of way? It's crucial. So we fight temptation. We fight sin with God's weapons. We prepare against outside threats because we love our families and we love God's people. One way we do that is by praying for our people, as Nehemiah started to. Alistair Begg tells the story of sneaking downstairs one late at night in his early childhood. He sneaks downstairs late at night and he says he hears his parents talking in a tone of voice that he hadn't heard before. You know how parents have a certain tone of voice in talking to their kids or in talking to other adults? He said, I hadn't heard this tone of voice before. And then he heard his name. They're saying Alistair. And he realized, my parents are praying for me. And he walked in on that. And that was significant in his spiritual development. To know that his parents were praying out loud together for him. One way to fight for our families is to pray together for one another. It's a microcosm of what we do here when we pray. And a couple of the men come up and we pray together for one another. Kids, I don't know if you liked that story about sneaking downstairs late at night like that. It's a good one. But I wanted to tell you one other thing. Kids, some of you are old enough to understand me right now. And yet every day at home, maybe you bully your brother or you ignore your sister or you disobey your parents. You need to know that you're, you're tearing down your family because you want what you want. And you need to listen to your parents. Your parents are going to pray and they're going to guard and they're going to fight against that spirit in you. Listen to them when they set themselves against your sin, as they must. Repent and turn back to God's way. Fight for your families, every one of you. Again, that can seem an overwhelming task, right? There's so much rubbish uh, cluttering the way. They're just going to sin again tomorrow the same way they did today. We get thinking. But there's growth little by little that's happening. Let's... That work together to build in God's ways. Well, verse 15, again, this attack depended on surprise, and Sanballat gives it up. So, ironically, the ones who were too fearful, up in verse 12, they sound a needed alarm. I think God often works that way through uh, weaker vessels who are, uh, who are too panicky, but are on to something that everybody needs to hear. That happens a lot, I think, today. I, people often pass things on to me. And it seems to me often there's too much of the sky is falling in this. But there's also some things to think about, some ways to set a watch certain places. So that often happens among God's people. And then verse 16 to the end of the chapter, I'll go through this quickly. We have more preparations here. And it's interesting, here is where Spurgeon gets his newsletter, The Sword and the Trowel, from. I think it's verse 16. From that time on, half my servants worked at construction. The other half held the spears. And then 
describes later, with one hand they were working at construction, with the other hand they held a weapon. Verse 17. Sword and trowel. That was Spurgeon's monthly magazine for over 20 years, starting in 1865. I looked it up. It's online, all for free. You can read all of his magazines. It's good, good stuff. Well, when you have a sword in one hand and you're still trying to build in the other hand, that's going to slow down the work. Right? But that's okay. We need to be ready to defend as much as we build. That's important. Again, tend and keep the garden. We can't just pick when we do which one. It depends on what comes at us sometimes. So uh, they also have a system to raise the alarm in case everyone is needed. And we do this too when trouble strikes. We bring meals to those who are overwhelmed. Right? We're, we set up a plan for you know what, what happens if something... Uh, if, if we have a fire here, those kinds of things. We set up a plan. And notice also the long hours in the constant guard. Right, They're working from sunup until the stars appear. <laughs> it's a long day. And then they have to have a watch at night too. So it's long hours, a constant guard. This is a... Put it this way, the opposition is stiff and strong and sustained. And Westminster speaks of an irreconcilable war that we're engaged in with the enemy, with the, with the sinful nature. So we need to not be intimidated. We need to be ready. We need to be uh, encouraged. One way to do that is to sing. That's part of why we sing so much and as we do. When you're overwhelmed, it's great to sing. You can sing from kids' songs to psalms. Right? My God is so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Kids' song like that. Or an old song. There's a song that um, the employer and owner of a, a company who made it big uh, over in Holland, when he um, passed away, everyone praised him to the skies for all that he did. He did so much, built so much. And, and he was, it was just amazing. And at his funeral, it turned out his favorite song was, He is able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. His focus, after building so much over a lifetime, was that God's the one who's able. God can do what I need, not me. Or you can sing a psalm. Maybe when you're overwhelmed and intimidated, you need to sing a psalm of lament first. Do not keep silent, God. Be not understanding. That, that, that kind of uh, psalm, 83. Or a mighty fortress. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. Good true words like that we can sing that fights the overwhelming intimidation we often face. We need the strength of Christ to endure this long and irreconcilable war. We need the mind of Christ to fight. We'll see more of that in the rest of Nehemiah. The mind of Christ in what Nehemiah's policies are, what he does. The opposition is stiff, it's strong, it's sustained. But God is on our side, and trusting Him, using the tools that He's given us, He will help us to build what we need to glorify Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for giving us such a realistic picture of our lives. We are faced with so many threats within and without, so much opposition to your will and your ways. We feel it even in our own hearts. So often we do not want what you want. Lord, purify us. Give us one united heart to fear your name. We thank you for the encouraging picture here in Nehemiah of your people continuing to build, guarding your people, setting a watch. Help us, Lord, to be vigilant, to be faithful and diligent in all of our work. Lord, give us the grace of that trust, that faith that leads to such work. We pray on this in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as we talk to you. time this morning, I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. As we consider the elements before us this morning, I'd like to look at the word that's used in verse 16 sometimes translated as sharing, communion, or participation. The Greek word used is koinonia, um, defined as what is shared in common as the basis for our fellowship. These elements that we share provide us with a great picture of our fellowship with Christ, not only united to Him by the Spirit, but also partaking of Him, nourished by Him as He feeds us. This participation in the body of Christ requires just that, that we live in fellowship and community with one another. As his body, we should be found in his word, living lives characterized by prayer and thanksgiving, and also growing in our care and service to each other. As we eat this meal, let us come to it with joy and thanksgiving, remembering the sacrifice of Christ and the new covenant that was made freeing us from the bondage of sin, and granting us eternal life to the praise of our Heavenly Father. The gifts of God for the people of God. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T K I R K M I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.